Close Watch, episode 17. Rob here. On this episode, we start our year-long run-through on some of the best and most exciting, at least to us, movie musicals of all time. Close Watch is devoting itself to movie musicals this year. And we're starting, of course, with 1986's Little Shop of Horrors. On this episode, I am honored to be joined by film critic Morgan Roberts. We had so much fun talking about that film from director Frank Oz, starring Rick Moranis and Ellen Green. As always, you can find more episodes of this show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Good Pods, and other podcatchers, as well as CrookedTable.com. Leave us a rating and or review wherever you're listening to this episode. For now, let's listen to a little bit of the trailer and then jump into our conversation about 1986's Little Shop, Little Shop of Horrors. It all began in this little shop. Oh, damn roses. Where, strange as it seems, something extraordinary happened. I'm afraid it isn't feeling very well today. No, it's not this door. What kind of a weird effect is that, Seymour? Little Shop of Horrors, a story about a boy. I've given you sunlight. I've given you rain. Looks like you're not happy. Unless I open a vein. Where did you get such a weird plan? Girl. You don't make nice boys when you live on Skidrow, Mr. Mushnick. See, now this is my date, my boyfriend. The florist. I'm telling you, Audrey, he's not a good, clean kind of boy. He's a professional. You'll be a dead You have a talent for causing pain. Hey, stop me a dead People will pay you to be in I've been saving all month for this. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow root canal. Feed me Seymour. And a plant. Feed me all night long. How am I supposed to keep on feeding you? Whoa! Feed me now, I'm just a mean green mother from outer space and I'm gay. I'm just a mean green mother from outer space and it looks like you've been hanged. Yes! Rick Moranis. Man's a total disgrace to the dental profession. Ellen Green. Excuse me. Excuse me what? That's better. Vincent Gardenia, with special guest appearances by Steve Martin, John Candy, and Bill Murray. It's your professionalism that I respect. Little Shop of Horrors. Welcome to Close Watch, where we get to know our guests through the movies they love. This year in 2023, I've decided just, you know, for fun, we're doing movie musicals this year, so I'm trying to keep this feed alive at least one episode a month, and there are going to be movie musical themes. So this episode, we're starting off with uh, sort of a jumping off point from, from the previous episode uh, our guest and I uh, were on together, and that was the Muppet Christmas Carol. And during that conversation on Franchise Detours, we were talking about, I think, I don't even remember. Little Shop of Horrors came up at some point, I think, just because of our love of puppets, I, I believe. And uh, and Little Shop of Horrors from 1986 was mentioned, so I'm honored to welcome to Close Watch film critic Morgan Roberts. Welcome to the podcast. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for having me again. I'm so excited to talk about this movie. So tell people who didn't hear our, our Muppet Christmas Carol episode uh, who you are and w- what you have going on. Yeah. Um, so as you said, I'm Morgan Roberts. I I'm a freelance film critic. I primarily write for the sites in their own league and uh, Filmotomy. Both sites have let me kind of run amok when it comes to talking about films directed by women. Um, That seems to be my niche. But um, yeah, that's kind of, I love all things cinema related. And yeah. I was just at Sundance, and so I'm super excited to be here to kind of talk about a comfort movie. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think we were, like I said a moment ago, we were just like kind of relishing in our love of the Muppets uh, uh, on that episode. And then I think we were just talking about the art of puppetry or something and how it's sort of kind of lost in modern film to a degree. And some reason Little Shop of Horrors came up. I think you mentioned that you loved this, this movie just in that conversation. I was like, yes. And I latched onto it immediately, added it to my notes. I was like, we're going to circle back to that as soon as possible. 
Um, so, so tell before we get into this movie, like what is what is you know you were mentioning off mic. What is your history with musicals in general? Do you have any particular uh, favorites? Yeah. So um, the fun story that I have is my parents met doing a musical together. So musicals have kind of been a constant theme throughout my life. Um, I obviously really loved the Disney musicals. So the one of the first musicals I ever went to see was Beauty and the Beast. And that is, still remains one of my favorite musicals to this day. Mm. Um, and I remember at five years old being like, this is... I love this movie, but man, this on stage is magic. So, um, yeah, I kind of always grew up watching movie musicals because they were far more accessible um, than having to go to the theater. And uh, yeah, The Little Shop was definitely one of the many that I watched as a kid. A lot of Rodgers and Hammerstein, too, of course. Um, So... Yeah, those were kind of like my soundtrack as a young person. There's something special about about movie musicals, about musicals in general, but I mean, about movie musicals specifically, because like you said, it, it brings that it brings that show, that story, those songs to a wider audience. Obviously, a lot more people have seen, you know, the Chicago film than have probably seen the Chicago, you know, uh, production on stage. Just because it's it's you know it's it's more easily reproducible, uh, and it, there's just something something special and magical about uh, watching a movie and some suddenly breaking into song. I've always really like. Is that something like what is it? What do you think the allure of 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 a mu- a musical is, especially like uh, on screen? I think one of the things about musicals is so. I think I, Anna Kendrick talks a lot about the difference between movies with songs in them and movie musicals. Because a musical, the songs have to propel the story. The song has to tell a story and it also has to propel the story, which is such a weird mix and a very difficult thing to be able to do. Um, So she always says, you know, Pitch Perfect is a movie with music in it. Right. Versus The Last Five Years that's a movie that the song is telling the story. And so I think that kind of makes... Music is something that kind of like films help bring us back. And when I was in graduate school, I went to school to be a therapist. And I worked with people with cognitive disorders. And the two things that tended to resonate most with people were movies from when they were younger and music because Mm -hmm. that somehow reignites something in our brain even when we're losing a lot of our memories a lot of our personality those two mediums those art can really make a person light up and so i think movie musicals kind of give you the best of both worlds not to quote lizzie mcguire but it it really is kind of the best of these two mediums that can hold so much nostalgia and meaning for people. Yeah, and I think it's a big part of why movies like this have endured for so long. Because this came out in 1986, in December 1986, and had a budget of $25 and it made $39 So it, like, did okay at the box office. But, I, you know, the legacy of this movie has continued on, like, 30-something years later, here we are talking about it. Uh, when was the first time you saw Little Shop of Horrors? Oh, I I probably couldn't give you an exact age because we watched it all the time when I was a kid. Um, so, I mean, like, I'm thinking three, four, probably. Um, a wow. tad too young. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. That's, that's for a conversation with an actual therapist to have. But I... Um, because we grew up with Howard Ashman and Alan Menken, my parents were like, well, just watch Little Trap of Horrors. Like, it's the same music in right. essence. Um, 
so yeah, like I was really young, very obsessed with Audrey, wanted to be Ellen Green so bad as a little kid. And um, yeah, that I was very young. No, I I think I was too, because this is one of those movies that has just been ingrained in me. Like, I don't remember what age I was when I first saw it either. I do remember uh, when I was a kid watching this, that my parents would, obviously not the first time, but at least on subsequent viewings, like cover my eyes or make me leave the room in the part where he's, <laughs> where, spoilers, Seymour is chopping up uh, Oren Scrivello and mm-hmm. feeding the body parts to Audrey too. Um, because, you know, that's probably the most obviously like graphic violence in the film. You get a lot of plants eating people, but it's essentially bloodless uh, other than that that one scene. So, yeah, I don't, I think it's just something with, you know, because there's puppets involved. I think there was something that parents were just like, ah, it's fine. Because so much of the entertainment that I grew up with, and maybe this is just a thing from the uh, the 80s, the early 90s, that puppets were so much more uh, prominent on my other show. We're talking the Ninja Turtles movies right now on Franchise Detours. Obviously, we did the Muppets last year. There's even a Muppet connection here. Frank Oz directed this. Uh, and it's like one of his first uh, solo directorial efforts. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I just think there's something innate in, in you know, people who grew up with puppetry that is just, uh, it had permeated the culture in such a way that maybe it was just coded to, you know, how some parents are not now so much, but like in the 90s or, or, you know, it was part of why I think The Simpsons was so scandalous because it's like, this is kind of adult for my small children, it, but it's animated. It, yeah. it must be targeted to small kids. I'm like, well, the animation is, you know, not exactly, it's a medium, as Guillermo del Toro would say. It's not a, uh, it's not a genre. You know, I think we kind of got that lesson to a degree when South Park was blowing up in the late 90s. Oh, like, oh, okay, not for kids. <laughs> But puppetry, I think, is another one that, except for things like, uh, you know, Meet the Feebles and some of those more horror-based puppet movies, uh, the Evil Dead franchise, which we covered on Franchise Detours, uh, a lot of that, I think puppets just sort of feel coded to be for kids, if that makes sense. Or at least they they were perceived that way, maybe around this time. Yeah, definitely. And there's also the fact, like, this is technically rated PG, I believe, and this was probably around the time that we were finally being introduced to the PG-13 rating in America. And you can tell what probably would have been rated PG-13 when you rewatch some of, like, especially, like, early 80s, some of those early John Hughes movies. Um, Like, I'm even thinking, like, Pretty in Pink was... Or it's not Pretty in Pink. Um, Sixteen Candles was uh, PG, and I remember watching it on my own sixteenth birthday. Going, are we sure that it's okay for children to watch this movie? Um, and so I think that that was kind of part of the growing issue at the time too. Is we basically were just like, these are adult films. We knew that G was for little kids and then everyone else just kind of, it was the Wild West from like for 17 and maybe down to like maybe 10, 11, you know, that age. Um, Like even Gremlins is rated PG and that is one of the most terrifying films from my childhood. Yeah, there's Gremlins and Temple of Doom, I believe, are the two that everybody's like, that's where PG-13 really solidified itself. We were like, we need something like this. Um, yeah, no, a- Airplane is PG, for yeah. example, which is not a kid's movie. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think that that's definitely part of it. And I, I just since we're already talking about the uh, the puppetry in this film, man, this thing is is underestimated as a technical oh, yeah. achievement. When you say like, I watch this now and I'm still like, God damn, Audrey 2 looks so good. And it's so impressive that this is a puppet, not stop motion, not CG, because today they would just slap some cg on it and it's i think it's so much more visceral and and uh you know uh scary and exciting to see rick moranis interact with this giant puppet oh yeah and i mean there's something that the puppeteers are doing even when audrey too is like a tiny plant where you start to understand that 
character's insidiousness. So then when Audra 2 is this giant plant, all of a sudden you're like, oh, no, like things are actually pretty serious here. And I don't think that you would get that with any other, you know, type of medium, animation, CGI, because there is one person having to operate the bulk of this puppet and give Mm. it life. And so I think, you know, puppeteers are actors just as much as Rick Moranis is an actor. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I just think it's such, it's just so incredible watching it. Like it still is like unsettling when you get to the Audrey 2 turn of, oh, like now Seymour is up shit's creek without a paddle type thing um and again like i've watched this movie since i was a kid and the minute we kind of hit the end of what would be act one that puppet just becomes so sinister and it's really amazing that just that in itself could be the thing that turns the tone up a notch it's it's also audrey too who who was created by uh a puppeteer named Lyle Conway, who had a, spe- a special credit in the uh, in the opening credits of this movie, so I wanted to give him a shout out as well because incredible work that that, that like it still stands up now, mm-hmm. looks better than and he looks better than most like similar creations nowadays. Um, I, I it's such a the the unveiling of Audrey II's motivation and like the reason that it's here, like. That's something that always really thrills me about the that character that it, the, it's such a gradual progression from, oh, you know, I guess it just needs a couple of drops of blood and, and to, you know, feeding it full people and it's taking over and uh, and, you know, you, where it's unveiled that it's from outer space and it's a whole like world domination thing. I, I love that sort of the rug pull in uh, Mean Green Mother from Outer Space where that where Audrey too is just completely like throwing all the cards on the table. Uh, what are your what are you what are you, what are your thoughts on this this character as such a compelling villain? Because honestly, when I think of like some of my favorite movie villains, it's either ones that seem like they shouldn't. A lot of times, it's ones that seem like they shouldn't be that big of a threat, and then yet somehow amass power and put themselves in a position where they're able to dominate our heroes. Like I think of. Audrey too, because of the way that that turn happens. I think of Biff Tannen in the Back to the Future trilogy, mm-hmm. uh, like characters like that who you're like, oh, not not a, not a big deal, and then <laughs> completely becomes a, a thorn in their side. What what are your thoughts on this character? As I I think one of the most impressive, like visually and and uh, you know even from a, sort of a narrative perspective, like villains on screen. Oh yeah, I well I always think it's so interesting because. Really, the first time that you're introduced that Audrey 2 needs human blood to exist is in kind of a doo-wop-y type yeah. song with growth for me. And it's, I mean, it's fun, it's light, and yet it's still somehow literally talking about a plant that needs blood to survive. And so I think that that's such an ingenious way of both presenting you and like not to do plant metaphors here but to plant a seed to say like this is exactly where we're heading and then the reveal in Mean Green Mother to be like yeah I already told you exactly who I was and now I'm so big and so terrifying there's basically nothing you can do at this point in time and I mean and that's such a great song too um, I just, yeah, it's just one of those turns that you're like, we knew that it was there, but when it's, all, it's all out in the open, all of a sudden you're like, oh, I was kind of hoping that this wasn't going to happen. And now here we are. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that song written, you know, created for this film, not in the show, which I think it's, it's mm-hmm. wild to think about because it feels like such a an integral part of the story as it's presented in this film that that song uh, was a new addition. Uh, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I love that sort of showdown with the two of them. 
And to reference, like you said, the sort of doo style, obviously this is one of a few that I can think of, movie musicals based on a musical, based on a movie. There's like, a, like I can think of Hairspray, the producers. Obviously, I think they're supposed to do a Mean Girls uh, mm-hmm. musical at some point, which would again, you know, movie musical, which would be a, based on the musical, based on the movie. Uh, and so I, I love when art that, the, the the relationship to those two media, like we were saying earlier, sort of comes full circle. Uh, and yeah, you, Ellen Menken and, and, and Howard Ashman, like they bring so much to the table here. There's a lot of shades of, especially in, um, what is it? Feed Me, Get It? Like the, it feels very uh, friend like me in certain points. He even mentions, a, uh, Audrey too even mentions a genie at one point. Mm-hmm. And that, is that something that you ever clocked? Like, does it sound to you like something that would fit with Alan Menken's other works? Oh, I mean, we all know that somewhere that's green is basically just part of your world. So it's so interesting to see how Little Shop of Horrors actually has informed so much of the Disney Renaissance. Um, because, you know, we have Howard Ashman and Alan Menken working together on Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast. They started on Aladdin together before Howard Ashman passed away. Tim Rice took over. Tim Rice, of course, wrote um, the music for Andrew Lloyd Webber's uh, Jesus Christ Superstar, which has some incredible uh, lyrics in that. And so it's just really interesting to see whether big or small, the pieces that Alan Menken and again, Howard Ashman would take from this musical and kind of disperse it in the other work that they were doing. Yeah, it's like, it's low key, I think, pretty influential in that way. And it's part of why a few years ago when they were talking about doing a remake, I was like, please don't. Just leave it alone. Like, I love Taron Eggerston and Scarlett Johansson and Chris Evans, but I don't want to see this remade. There's literally no reason to do it. I mean, uh, I just was recently discussing on on another podcast, uh, Ocean's Eleven, and how there's no reason, like, for, there's no reason for that movie to work, but it does because it's remaking something where there was a seed of a good idea. It didn't really have the lasting impact, or maybe it didn't, you know, uh, land, execute that idea in the right way. And so remaking it and kind of polishing it up, I think, made sense in that case. It's part of why that movie works so well. But here, there's nothing to remake. Like, this is already a period piece in and of itself. So how would you, you know, there's no updating necessary. It's just, uh, you know, I'm just one of those projects that I'm really glad to see fall apart. Apparently, last fall, they announced that it had been canceled. Yeah. Yeah. Like, there's no way. And I think one of the things, especially bringing up the fact that Green Mean Mother was written for the movie is when you are doing a movie musical nine times out of ten you have to adjust the music the lyrics add a song take out some songs to make it work for screen because stage and screen are never going to be a hundred percent right you know uh compatible so you have to adapt it to the medium that you're presenting it in and without having Howard Ashman to write lyrics for new songs, there's no way that they're going to work seamlessly with an update or a remake of an already amazing movie. So I, as you said, I'm so glad that they <laughs> tapped out before wasting everyone's time and yeah, money. Yeah, exactly. Because um, again, you can't, you're going to try to update it. I mean, this movie has, I mean, the plant that eats people is somehow not even the worst part of it. Like, it's about it's generational poverty. It's about yeah. um, interpersonal, you know, uh, interpersonal relationship violence. Um, yeah. You know, there is... Um, a sadistic dentist who not only abuses his partner, but literally his patient. Yeah. There, there are things that really test even the mid-80s PG um, that I think if you tried to remake it, one, you would be remaking it solely for adults. 
And two, you would completely lose kind of what makes that movie musical magical because so much of it is in the subtext. And we don't like subtext nowadays. Mm. Um, And so, yeah, if you attempt to remake that, you're going to lose all the fun, magical bits that, you know, when you're three and four go completely over your head. But when you're an adult and Mr. Mushnick asks Audrey, oh, were you all tied up? And she says, handcuffed, actually. (laughs) And she, you know, as an adult, then you're like, oh, oh, I did not get that. Right. Yeah, there's a lot of things that as like that, especially with uh, Audrey and Oren's relationship, where as an adult, I'm watching it. I'm like, that's the more problematic thing that I shouldn't have been seeing as a kid. Like that is. And not only Mm -hmm. is that relationship disturbing, but the movie is has like a dark sense of humor. So it's sort of getting some juice out of that as well. Like you were saying with the handcuffs and with some of that. And then it's, yeah, it's, what are your thoughts on, on like this being, how is this, how did this movie seeing it at such a young age, like we were saying right before we started, kind of inform your taste in musicals? Cause I was telling you like a lot of my favorite ones are the dark macabre, like, yeah. you know, uh, the, the Sweeney Todd's, the Rocky horrors, uh, the Hedwig and the angry inch. Like there's like a darkness, like a, uh, uh, not, not even like a satirical. There's like a, um, I don't know, help me out here. It like subverts what makes music, like it subverts the Rodgers and Hammerstein version of musicals, yes. you know, because like I was um, on another podcast talking about um, Deborah Carr and The King and I. And that musical, I mean, number one, it's very problematic because you have a Russian actor playing a Asian uh, character who was right. a real person. So, I mean, like, the whitewashing is bad. Um, but, like, the whole thing was about this woman goes to Asia to meet this king and... There's still slavery there. There um, is still like a caste-like system there. There is just like a um, hierarchy there that she wasn't used to. And it's so much about, I mean, it's problematic because there's the white savior complex, but then there's also the, there really were people who were enslaved in this nation at that time. and. They get like one beautiful dance number. And then the next thing you know, it's just like, okay, well, like, let's go back to their friendship. And it lost so much of like the very important historical context. And so when we shift to things like Hedwig, Rocky Horror, it is subverting those things that we didn't want to talk about and making those the premise and the focus of it. Because, you know, Rocky Horror is very... It's very sexual. It is uh, transgressive. It's designed to feel transgressive. Like everything about it, you're like, should I be watching this? Like they cram as much, as many taboo subjects as they possibly can in that movie. Yes. And I mean, like, and at a time too where, I mean, this is also pre-AIDS epidemic. So the idea of cross-dressing and um gender fluidity those were not in the vernacular at the time and yet here it is literally being presented to audiences Hedwig and the Angry Inch another one that is about a you know trans or you know non-binary gender fluid type you know gender fluid woman who Mm. um is looking at the duality of gender instead of looking at it as a singular binary um that that you know that the movie came out in 2001 there we were just getting into the understanding that gay people should exist and the trans community was so not in the picture in america um, general understanding of what LGBTQ actually meant. Um, so it's so interesting to see a film like Little Shop, which is so much about poor people living in Skid Row. Most of them are unhoused. Most of them do not have 
the livelihood that you would want to see in a musical. Like there's, it's not all roses and sunshine over there. Like they are literally just going, I want to get out of my situation to just basic suburbia. And it's just so interesting that that is kind of the focus of the musical instead of, you know, here they are look, working in a, you know, could have so easily just been like, we work in a florist shop and here are some doo-wop songs. Oh no, here's <laughs> an evil plant. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's just so interesting. It's like, I was watching it last night to prepare for this episode and I was watching with my wife. She and I both saw it a lot as kids. Uh, and we're, so we're rewatching it for this. And I, I noted, like, it really stuck out to me how depressing and like, like oh, how much of a bummer the rest of the, the world of these, this movie is without, you know, uh, Ronette, Crystal and Chiffon as, as essentially the, the Greek muses. It feels like an idea that, again, like to, res to reference your Disney Renaissance thing, that Hercules was like, yeah, we're just going to do that. I mean, mm -hmm. obviously... You know, this movie sort of borrowing the the concept of the Greek muses, the Greek chorus from Greek mythology, and Hercules is sort of circling back on that. But it, it feels very in tandem with uh, with this. Again, Hercules also with music done by Alan Menken, also kind of putting, you know, uh, more of a, a more modern uh, style of music, like applying there. It's like gospel music is kind of their their genre uh, from there. But yeah, it's. It's not only the the evil plant and then the relationship with Orin and, and Audrey. It's also like Audrey too represents the sort of the dark side of ambition. Like, okay, you're desperate and you want to get out of here. They sing a whole song about Skid Row and living downtown and how they want to, you know, they'd be willing to do a, a heck of a lot to get out of them, out of Skid Row. And it, Audrey too basically puts that to the test. It's like, okay, well, how far would you be willing to go? Would you be willing to kill for it to get what you want? You know, I, I'm this giant plant and I have, I guess I'm all powerful, <laughs> essentially, by some point in this movie. Uh, so I, I think that that's an interesting sort of commentary to what you're saying about how musicals sort of uh, hold up the, you know, talk about things that other genres, you know, maybe you would have even had a harder time taking on directly because they're not given the sheen of, of you know, this genre where they're, in it, they're not packaged with a bunch of catchy songs, uh, this movie is able to sort of tackle those like deeper issues and, and you know, shine a light and, and put a, hold a mirror up to it a little bit. So in keeping with that, like, do you, have you seen the director's cut? Because which ending of this movie do you prefer? Because they are very different. And there's they a whole backstory different. there. Yeah, I know that I have never seen the director's cut. I know how it ends. Um, but I, for my own nostalgia, always just watch the theatrical release because, I mean, the theatrical, uh, the theatrical cut they have to make because audiences were pissed that it ends so tragically. And um, I mean, that's how the musical itself ends too. Exactly. Um, so yeah, I I know it. I know how it ends, but I just want, you know, Audrey and Seymour to have their tracked house of their own. So I still just watch the theatrical cut. <laughs> yeah, I, I had seen like, I don't know, a decade ago, the black and white like work print footage because it was uh, supposedly the, the original director's cut footage was lost or, you know, not in, you know, not in in really great condition and so it, it was just available online and like as the black and white sort of test footage basically which uh hadn't been finalized or or you know assembled into the movie uh, and readily available until like a few years ago and then i finally i got the blu-ray like i don't know last year and so i actually for the first time watched the director's cut for this and i'm i feel kind of mixed on it because i, I agree with you i think that rick moranis uh, and Ellen Green, who I definitely want to talk about both of them a little more in a second. Uh, I think their characters are so endearing that you want them to be happy together. But it's, you know, it also it it's it, the the point of the musical. I think to a to a is to comment on that sort of moral question that I was saying earlier, and be like, hey, watch, don't feed the plants. Watch, would you make the right choices? Don't get sucked into that. Like, 
you know, be aware, be conscious of the decisions you make and all that other stuff. Uh, so I like that element of it. Plus, it just looks so rad seeing these giant Audrey 2, like we were saying earlier with the puppets, these giant Audrey 2s just kind of like stomping around cities, climbing the Statue of Liberty. So, I, you know, I think my heart will always belong to the theatrical cut. Uh, but but it's it is I, I would recommend people that have seen the theatrical cut, never seen the director's cut. Check it out just for like the sheer novelty and like technical achievement of it. Because I kept stressing to my wife, I'm like, remember, this was 86 and it looks like this. And it, and it looks so impressive uh, for, for the time, especially. Yeah, I, I think one of the things about that ending, too, it kind of almost reminds me a little bit of um, how Jordan Peele had to change the ending of Get Out. Mm, you know, yeah. the, the film came out post-2016 election. Um, and, uh, you know, spoilers for that film. But originally, um, the Daniel Kaluuya character was supposed to get arrested. And I think changing it definitely was uh, kinder to audiences, though I absolutely see the value and vision of what Jordan Peele was trying to do with it. Right. And, you know, 1986, this is, you have people in cities contracting AIDS, again, whether they were gay and bisexual men. Um, you know, the trans community was also very greatly impacted by the AIDS epidemic. Um, IV uh, substance abuse users were also, um, you know, substance users were also having to um, deal with the realities of this epidemic. And um, I think when you see people who were living in an inner city, who were living in poverty, who were stuck in a place where there was no way for them to have a substantial life, that the commentary of the musical is just, that's not what was needed at that time. Mm. Um, so I think by kind of giving them their happy ending it gave everyone a little bit of a happy ending whether or not i mean obviously you know that it wasn't a box office hit the way that get out was um but you know for the audiences that were seeing it they actually got to see people who were having to live in a place of socioeconomic disadvantage actually get to have some bit of peace so again the musical ending is important for what it's saying but the change for the audience through a theatrical release i think is also a very important um piece to this musical as well yeah it, it gives it sort of a an a little bit of an aspirational hopeful note to end on even though it does you do you get that that one bloom, that one flower of the Audrey two smiling in their flower bed. And so you're like, ah, oh, they got to be careful, though. They got they stuck away this time. But, you know, be aware. So it still gives you that little that little question mark yeah. at the end. And I think I've seen I think I read Frank Oz or someone saying that part of the thing, too, is when they do that on stage and everyone gets eaten and Audrey two uh, takes over the world, uh, they then come out for their curtain call. And so it's like the illusion is dropped. It's a lot, it's leaving mm -hmm. the, you're leaving the theater on a lot different note if those characters you just saw get, get eaten and you just saw the world get kind of dominated by giant plants. And then literally the last shot of the, uh, the director's cut is Audrey 2 breaks through the movie screen, essentially, and like comes into, you know, essentially, you know, if you were seeing it in theaters, it would look like it's coming out into the theater, basically. Uh, which is a cool idea, but it's also like, you know, you, now I think it's a good time to sort of transition to these performances. Rick Moranis and Ellen Green, they're so they're so damn good in this movie, first of all. And Rick Moranis was such a staple of this era, Ghostbusters, and then after this Spaceballs and Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Like, he was such an everyman that we wanted to just, you know, immediately, we wanted to root for him. And I think there's subtle differences with uh, the way... 
because I've seen this on stage. I'm, I'm assuming you probably have at some point. I have not. Oh, we need to we need to fix this. Morgan. I know. I unfortunately, you know, grew up in a family who loved musicals, but not in a socioeconomic place where we could go right. and see musicals. Yeah, I would. It's it's really cool to see on stage. Um, it's uh, in the, the the production that I saw, at least. Seymour seemed more, even more complicit and even more um, on board with Audrey's plan. Like when Audrey said, oh, you know, go and go, go get it, you know, go kill that guy. He's like, I don't know. Anyone deserves to die. He's like, sure you do. And he points out the window like he was more, he went in the office. He had an interaction with Oren and he shot him. In this version, in the movie, he's goes there to shoot him, but he's hesitating and there's the whole thing with the gas mask and Oren basically suffocates, asphyxiates himself by accident. And I, I, so there are little touches like that, even with Mr. Mushnick, where he has that moment at the very end where he's like, uh, sir, like he wants to warn him about it, mm-hmm. but too late. You know, he doesn't get a chance to do it. So it's still the end result is the same. So he's still his hands are still dirty, but it's not in the same way that he's, you know, he's he's remorseful. He's re- repentant about it uh, in this version. And I think that that's a huge difference with whether or not we want to see this guy triumph over this giant plant. Yeah. And I know that, you know, as you said, they were trying to have a, another adaptation of this to the screen. And um, I know that uh, Jake Gyllenhaal has been involved in this um, on stage. And I always feel like when you look at who was playing Seymour, like they still weren't necessarily the everyman like there's no offense to Jake Gyllenhaal but he is too there is just kind of a unapproachableness to him I mean he's a very gorgeous man um yeah Yeah. (laughs) but there is an unapproachableness to it where it's like well of course she has a crush on Seymour he looks like Jake Gyllenhaal versus oh of course she has a crush on Seymour because He's caring. He's kind. Right. You know, Rick Moranis, I mean, even in his personal life, he gave up acting after his wife died so that he could be there for his children. Like, mm-hmm. he just exudes, like, the dad energy that anyone wants. And um, I think that that also makes for a really compelling lead character and love interest because he is sensitive. He is um conflicted by having to kill people in order to keep this plant that he named after the person that he loved yeah. alive. And so I think that he adds nuance where the pretty boys of stage and screen don't add that um, um, just by their appearance and their demeanor. No, I agree. Like, like I said, uh, Taron Egerton was being was supposedly like in talks for the movie for the remake, and I'm like, but the guy, the smooth dude from Kingsman, like that doesn't, that's not Seymour. Seymour has to, like you said, he has to have that that dad energy. His father, he knows best. That all fits a lot better there. Uh, he 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 should seem completely like the opposite of the people that Audrey would either be attracted to or see herself with because just of her her history her romantic history she says mm-hmm. you know she says oh you know i don't deserve a nice guy and and not rick moranis not a bad looking guy but not the kind of guy that you would immediately be like oh my god i need to be with him yeah uh, which is why it's so funny when she's like um that seymour's a cutie if not he's got inner beauty <laughs> so yes. it's like yeah yeah he does and he's you know he, he's he's uh he clean him up and he'll be all good to go um, yeah, no, totally. I, I, and Rick Moranis, again, I, someone that I feel like audiences that around this time were, were kind of predisposed to like at that point. Were you, were you, uh, a big Rick Moranis fan where some of those movies I mentioned in your rotation? Oh yeah. Like we, big Mel Brooks family. So Spaceballs was on a lot. And then, um, I mean, Ghostbusters as well is kind of one that, um, I think was like the perfect introduction to the actually a nice guy, nice guy persona that Rick Moranis had on screen. Mm -hmm. Um, Because for me, at least, I always felt that the Ghostbusters were a 
you know, there you have Bill Murray there. He's kind of always a bit of a sarcastic jerk in the characters that he plays. Um, and so, you know, there's Rick Moranis just being sweet and charming and everyone's giving him a hard time. And then when something bad actually happens to him, you're like, oh, no, that's who I'm actually invested in. Like, I, that's the person that I want to make sure gets out of this okay. Yeah, absolutely. He's Barney Rubble. Everybody likes Barney Rubble. Who doesn't love Barney <laughs> Rubble? Yeah. And then Ellen Green, who who uh, originated this character on uh, Off-Broadway, in the Off-Broadway production of this. I mean, she's, other than maybe Levi Stubbs as the voice of Audrey too, which now every time I hear a Four Tops song, I'm like, hey, Audrey Two mm-hmm. is in a, in a like a singing group. Awesome. Uh, she is such she is such a VIP of this movie. Uh, what, what you mentioned earlier, your your love wanting to be Ellen Green in this movie. What is it about her performance and this character that you find so uh, so compelling? I you know I just think that there's something about Ellen Green, and I also you know later on in life she was on the uh, Brian Fuller show, Pushing Daisies which I think also kind of has a mixture of brightness and macabre to it. Um, And she, what's so wonderful about Ellen Green as a performer is she has this very dry delivery for humor, but she's very straight when she is saying something absolutely hilarious. Mm -hmm. You can't tell if she 100% knows the joke or not. And so I think that's what makes it even more endearing because it's just like, oh, yeah, like, of course, actually, it was more like this. Um, and, you know, she originated this role and you can just tell that, like, this was her vision. She was part of the creation of this character. So it just feels so lived in. Um, yeah. And I just her singing. And suddenly Seymour, the way she just felt and feels every emotion in it is just incredible. Yeah, I was that's when you were talking about her in this movie. That's the, the moment mm-hmm. I was thinking of when she's up on the fire escape and she's yep. like belting out and, and Seymour's below. Yeah. I, and that's probably my favorite song from this as well. And uh, that's something I wanted to ask you. What did what is your. Obviously, favorite performance, but I'm going to assume is Ellen Green. Yeah. Uh, what, what is your favorite song from this one? I think Somewhere That's Green is my favorite because it also has the, um, the great line of in the pine salt scented air somewhere that's green. Yeah. Like it's some of the best lyrics in the whole piece, which is full of amazing lyrics. Um, Howard Ashman was really a... Um, genius there um but yeah somewhere that's green and it's all it's so much of audrey and it is kind of her very dark disney princess moment um being able to sing that number yeah th- that interaction right after when oren scrivello goes missing and she's like he says uh oh would it, would it be so bad if something had happened to him she's like seymour what a thing to say and she's like it wouldn't be it would be it would be a miracle or something like the way she yeah she she delivers her lines with just just the right balance of uh like wry wit and earnestness mm-hmm. i think is what it is that you're like you, that make that character feel real the voice and then even like obviously her clothing plays a huge like story role yeah in the way she dresses early on presumably because her boyfriend wants her to dress that way and then later on she actually you know doesn't have everything like low cut and she's actually like more wearing things over her shoulders and and things like that when she sort of comes into her own i love that that redemption story for her that that she's able to sort of kind of become more of herself and escape this this self-destructive pattern that she has i think it's really it's really sweet yeah yeah and i you know i watched ellen green in other works um as i said pushing daisies or um I'm dancing as fast as I can with Jill Clayburgh. And it's very interesting because like that, you know, her as Audrey is very much just Ellen Green. And I think that she just has such a, um, she just wears her heart on a sleeve as a performer. 
And hers, Audrey, is just like the pinnacle of that. Um, yeah, so it's fantastic. I would be remiss if we didn't spend at least a couple minutes on Steve Martin in this. Yes. Steve Martin at the, at the, the like, I don't want to say peak of his fame, but definitely one of the, like, one of the top comedy stars around this time. I think this is kind of like when he's in the middle of his run, his mid to late 80s run. He does Dirty, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels with Frank Oz, I think like a, a couple years after this. Mm -hmm. So talk about a character that is complete opposite of what we just said with, with Seymour and, and Audrey irredeemable he's like as we as you sort of alluded to he's more of a monster than the giant man-eating plant to the point that when you know when he gets eaten we're like yeah okay you can eat that guy he probably yeah. has it coming uh what do you think about steve martin in this movie and the way he toes that line between being such a bastard but also being one of the like having one of the most over-the-top hilarious scenes with the whole dentist sequence oh yeah i mean dentist what a great song um yeah. I I think one of the things that Steve Martin always does well is when he gets to be outlandish, he will make it as outlandish as possible. So then that way you can't really tell if it's charm or just him being an asshole. And I love that he has the ability to make those two what should be dichotomous. Mm -hmm. um, traits be very seamless together um i mean him and bill murray as the patient um definitely feels like two comedy friends just trying to test each other like they're on the carol burnett show or something yeah um yeah so i think one of the things about steve martin that i've always liked is when especially in like small roles. He knows that his time is finite. So he's going to make it as big and bold and memorable as possible. And then just leave. And yeah. no qualms about it. No, he, he shows up. He's referenced a couple scenes uh, earlier on and then shows up on the motorcycle, has his song. And then I think like 10 minutes later, he's dead, something like mm -hmm. that. It's like he's in like, there's a, there's, a, there's a Steve Martin chunk of the movie and then that's it. Then like you said, he's out. And he just makes such an impact the way he, like you said, the way he owns that character, the little kind of like dance move he does on the word maladjusted always yes. cracks me up. Uh, when he sees, when he sees Audrey too, and he's like, Oh, look at this. He's the way he's called, he says the word big, like big. Yeah. Um, just like he leans into that ridiculous accent. Oh man. It's, it's magic. Steve Martin is, he, he gives this thing such a, a, a shot in the arm and it doesn't even really need that but he, you know it gets an extra boost from him anyway and also from just like a a you know a cinematography standpoint that shot from inside of his patient's mouth come on oh yeah that, oh. amazing somebody had to build a like puppet mouth to shoot that from to shoot that through and it, it blows my mind every time i see it yeah i think one of the things too is that the dentist sequence specifically gets Steve Martin is both in his delivery of the song, but also in the way that he like enters and like literally hits the dental hygienist throughout the entire yeah. sequence. I think it informs so much about that character because, you know, we're literally being told that like his temperament's wrong for the priesthood and teaching would suit you still less on be a dentist. Um, and so, we know that he likes sadicism and yeah. um, the fact that even when he just enters a room, he is probably breaking someone's nose or giving them a blast eye <laughs> because that's just the type of person that he is. And he does it in such a, again, the physical comedy of that, that scene, that sequence is just so hilarious too. Yeah. Yeah. So what, since the since he is the way he is with Audrey, uh, what do you think? You know, what do you think makes it okay to laugh at him in this? Since we know he is this monstrous human being, because I think it's a really interesting line this movie plays with, and what what's funny, what's disturbing. Sometimes the same thing is is both at the same time. Yeah. It's just tonally, and this is why I was like, why was I watching this as a small child? Yes. This is yeah. not the kind of thing you would be able to parse out as 
as you know a five, six, seven year old or whatever. Um, it's because it's such it's it's playing so wildly with uh, with such different kinds of content that it's it's not really you know you need to have your adult eyes on it. Well, you know, dentist is such an up song like it's not be prepared it's not poor unfortunate souls it's not sinister and so as you're saying it toes this really fine line because here he has you know our muses of this kind of greek tragedy in the background singing this really upbeat song about how when he was a kid he abused animals he basically was told that he needed to be a dentist because it was the only career where he could inflict pain upon people and they, they would, would pay, pay him for, for it. it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but he's doing it to like such a catchy song. And so I think that kind of leans into the subversion of what we're talking about. Because, you know, I also think about, as we've mentioned, uh, Hedwig and the Angry Inch, mm. I, you know, Sugar Daddy is this super upbeat song about him being with, you know, we have Hedwig. She's being whisked away by this man who, you know, later leaves her. Um, yeah. we, but it's, you know, it's fun and she's dancing and Andrea Martin's there and then even when you go into Angry Inch, which is about her surgery being botched, and that's also a super dark song, and yet there's a joke in it where she mentions my first day of the woman, and I'm already, and it's already, the, you know, the time, of the, month, yeah. the time of the month. And just the way that it's, we're adding humor into something that is also so painful for this character. So in Little Shop, we have this character who is uh, so abusive, can only communicate and feel joy through pain. And it's like this upbeat little ditty that he's singing around about finding joy in other people's pain. And so I think those two juxtapositioning things are what make it First, you're laughing at it, and then you're going, wait a second, why am mm. I laughing at yeah. this specific moment? So it, it really makes you take a step, take a beat as you're listening to it to be like, oh, this is what, wait, so he, when he was done, he bashed in a pussycat's head, and oh, now he's killing other animals it's, okay great. it's 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 the contrast of the style of music i think like you were saying and also it's so blatantly evil and 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 like violent like you were saying where it's like smacks smashing you know small animals and I, I, it's just like so he embraces it so much and he's so unabashedly proud of his career that it's just like it shows you how out of touch he is the one the moment that they count, the moments that they count on for the gravity of that relationship with him and Audrey are outside. I think with uh, with Seymour when she he's trying to guess his name and she says it, and then he's like, you know, gets mad at her. Uh, mm-hmm. And then afterwards, obviously, when Seymour sees her, gets slapped inside the uh, the apartment. I think those are the moments where like, oh, mother, like you yeah. know, go and get him, Seymour. Like you're all fully on board. You're like, I agree with the evil plant, I think, uh, in this yes. instance. Like, he has it coming, uh, which is, I guess, a Chicago reference uh, that I snuck in there. But, but yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I, it's, it's, very, it's very much not for children. So people listening to this, don't be fooled by the puppets. Um, is there anything about Little House that we haven't talked about? Uh, a song or a moment or a line or something that really resonates with you that you wanted to make sure we mention? I, I mean, I do want to, I know that we kind of briefly touched on it. I think if you really listen to the song Skid Row, that is another hint that this musical is not for you because it does have Mm -hmm. one of my favorite bridges where, I mean, literally the, um, 
the lyric goes, uptown you cater to a million whores. You, di- mm-hmm. you, dis- you disinfect terrazzo on their bathroom floors. The jobs are really menial. You make no bread. And then at five o'clock, you head downtown. And yeah. I just love that it is the most jarring lyric I have ever heard to have three women in harmonizing the word whore together. Um, but it's also such a great introduction to this musical. So don't let your three or four-year-old watch this. Yeah, it sets up the stakes like immediately. Like, and that's obviously what the best musicals do. You know, you have your, you know, you mentioned Beauty and the Beast earlier. You have Belle walking through the village and you get a sense of who she is, who these people are, the dynamic and everything mm-hmm. in like three minutes, basically, four maybe. Uh, and here it's the same thing. Like you understand everyone's motivation, where they are, their place in the world, why they are so desperate to get out of here and why it might take a minute for Seymour to be like, mm, maybe feeding this guy, this plant, human people, human, human blood and later feeding him people. Maybe not the best idea because it's like I, I'm desperate to, to make something to get noticed. And uh, Christopher Guest showing up as the first customer is really fun. And yes, uh, and, a lot of <laughs> the great way he cameos. Just, like, oh, my gosh. Yeah. We mentioned Bill Murray already. John Candy. Mm-hmm. It's a real like who's who of mid 80s co- comedy stars. Yeah. Like you can just tell that there was a phone tree somewhere that, that say started. And then a lot of people were brought into the project. Definitely. So. Obviously, we we agree this movie's amazing. People should definitely check it out. Yeah. If they haven't seen it, how would you sell them on this movie? How would you be like, hey, Little Shop of Horrors, 1986. If you're of age, <laughs> check it out. Yes. If you're of age, I mean, if you're a musical lover, if you love things like Hedwig and the Angry Inch, which is on Criterion for a reason, um, if you loved movies like Labyrinth as a kid. Um, It has the same vibe. Or if you like to dabble in kind of off-the-beaten-path movie musicals like Reefer Madness, this is a very simple sidestep into um, enjoying this. And if you're not a musical person, then definitely come for the puppet because it is some of the best puppeteering in a movie that you will see 100% absolutely yeah and and the Rick Moranis and the Steve Martin like yeah gotta get your Frank Oz's filmography in general you know until we get to like Stepford Wives pretty solid like that run in the 80s and 90s pretty pretty good stuff so like run through that filmography I would say go take a trip to Oz uh and and get into that um and if people have seen this and what would, would you recommend you already said that I actually haven't seen Reefer Madness. That's one that I need to check out because I That's, like all the other ones we talked about. Yeah, Reefer Madness is basically a parody of a 1932, 1933 propaganda film, which basically was trying to equate marijuana usage to um, like cannibalism. And um, it's really, it's a weird musical incredible lyrics um the same teams who worked on reefer madness also went on to work um on heathers the musical which is also another deep dive that i recommend it's a great musical if you like musicals um based off of movies and yeah so reefer madness definitely check that one out Awesome. Since like since last one last question and then and then we'll yeah. we'll tie this up. Since like I said, this is a movie musical based on a musical based on a movie. Is there one that hasn't been made that you're kind of hoping to see? I guess a a adaptation of a musical based on a film. There's so many of them the last couple decades. Like I feel like Broadway in particular has been leaning on that pretty hard with the, the Legally Blondes and and uh, the Bring It Ons and and all these mm-hmm. other ones. Is there one that you want to see? I mean, there's one that I would both be interested in seeing and a little heartbroken that they would make in remake as a movie, which is Waitress, which was 
you know, originally directed by Whitnett and directed by Adrian Shelley, who sadly passed away before the film was released. And I, I know that Waitress as a musical I mean, is brilliant. It's written by Sarah Bareilles. I love her work. So I love that. And I would just hope that if they did turn it into a, a movie musical of a musical based off of a movie, um, that it would hopefully encourage people to watch the 2007 version of Waitress. Yeah, that's a good pull. That's okay. a good pull. Yeah, we'll we'll see. I think it's it's interesting. Like I said, I think there's a lot of lot more movie musicals, like the whole thing that we just said. Uh, there's a lot more of those probably coming uh, as pop culture sort of turns in and cannibalizes itself or reinvents yeah. itself a little bit, depending on your perspective. Uh, but I think this is one example where, again, like we said, the 1960 movie was was a Roger Corman film and it was fine for its time. But, you know, this has become the de facto impression of what Little Shop of Horrors is. You search Little Shop of Horrors, this is what comes up now. It's yeah. the musical that this is based on or this film. Yeah. And, you know, rightfully so, as, we, as we've talked about. Uh, but yeah, that's pretty much all, all I had on Little Shop of Horrors. Morgan, thank you so much for coming on. I love this movie. Uh, as I know you do, so I'm glad we were able to sort of geek out, geek out about it for an hour. Uh, tell people where they can find you on social media. Yeah, um, you can follow me over on Twitter at MSMLRoberts. And um, I also believe that my letterbox is the same. So um, if you like, um, you know, these types of films and more, that's kind of what I'm doing on both of those apps. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, we'll Thank definitely you. get you back here or, or Franchise Detours sometime in the near future. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. Big thanks to film critic Morgan Roberts for coming on to discuss 1986's Little Shop of Horrors. So much fun. Such a seminal movie for both of us, it sounds like. So definitely check that out if you haven't seen it. Now, I want to know, what is your history with Little Shop of Horrors? Were you raised... At the at the feet of uh, at the roots, I guess I should say, of Audrey too, looking up to this giant plant and realizing cinema is magic, and look what's possible if if they can make a giant plant look this real with nothing but badass puppetry. Maybe I can do something with my life. Let me know. Let me know what I can do with my life first of all, but also let me know your experience with Audrey too. Find me on Twitter at Crooked Table, same handle on Instagram via email at Robert at CrookedTable.com. We'll be back next episode with another movie musical. What will it be? For now, that's a wrap on another Crooked Table production. Keep watching, everybody. This has been a production of CrookedTable.com. All rights reserved. That's the yard of the